1: Hey, everyone, as we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part to save democracy and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Join the union.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Anna Schumann. She sits on the board for both 3GNY, a nonprofit founded by the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, and the New Krakow Friendship Society a non-profit international organization established by survivors of the Holocaust from Krakow, Poland, and carried on by their descendants. In addition to her non-profit work, she spent time in the fields of publishing, production, and is currently following in her grandfather's footsteps. He was a beautician as a makeup artist and wardrobe stylist. You know, I think we could probably use your help with Rick Wilson on the breakdown. He's got a lot of forehead. I mean, a lot. Acres of it. Anyway, Anna is coming to us from her home in New York. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So this week on Thursday the 27th will be Holocaust Remembrance Day. And I wanna talk a little bit about the nonprofit work you're doing. But first I wanna hear about your background and some history. So let's get into it. So obviously 3G NY is third generation in New York of Holocaust survivors. So tell us how you got into this and a little bit of background and how you came to be doing this kind of work.
0: So both of my mother's parents and her maternal grandmother are Holocaust survivors, as you mentioned from uh, Krakow, Poland. And I have always been surrounded by that community. I grew up going to the new Krakow Friendship Society events and it wasn't until I was older that I realized that some of the things that I experienced being a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, which was maybe not typical, and that how I view the world and how I react to certain things is completely framed by the fact that I'm a 3G. So motivated by a lot of current events and having children, I wanted to be more involved. And I'm the first 3G on the board of New Krakow Friendship Society. And then I became aware of 3GNY. And I'd never before going to an event there, I'd never been in a room with only grandchildren of Holocaust survivors before. And there's a feeling of understanding that you can't get necessarily in another frame. and what motivated me about them is what they're doing as far as Holocaust education goes. So, 3Gs, we are often the last living link to Holocaust survivors. I'm the last generation who was able to look into my grandparents' face and hear their stories and see their pain and continue to carry on their legacy. So, through the 3G and why we educate initiative, basically, I learned how to tell my grandfather I I focus my grandfather's story from beginning to end childhood throughout his passing in a way that resonates with especially students but with any audience
1: let's talk about your grandfather where was he from what happened during the war and how did he get to come here
0: so he was born like i said in krakow poland and he was a young man once the war started he was in his late adolescence and as you mentioned he was a beautician so his father died when he was a teenager and when he would talk about his father he would say that he was the lucky one because he never had to see what happened next and my grandfather max Elfstein, my papa max he dropped out of school went to cosmetology school and he was a natural at it and he skipped ahead and by 17 he was running the family business and although you know he was a jewish man his family was secular you know the salon was for anybody and you know a lot of people now they have this idea that like if you're not a religious jew or you're not visibly jewish that you're somehow safe but that wasn't true then and it's certainly not true now so he was always kind of cognizant of anti-Semitism, and there's this one particular night he was talking about where he was in the salon, and somebody came running in on a Friday night after Shabbat services when the temples let out. There are a lot of people crowding the streets, and a local anti-Semitic group was beating up Jews on the street, and my grandfather was trained as a boxer, so... Somebody ran in, Max, we need you, we need your help. So he puts down his scissors and he puts on his boxing gloves because he has to protect <laughs> his hands because there's a livelihood. And he goes out to the street, him and two of his friends, and he said, I knocked a few because he kind of always had this idea that if something's going on, you know, I'm young and I'm able, so I'm going to do it. And he really kept that attitude throughout his whole life, which is miraculous considering what he went through. So uh, not long after that incident, Germany invades, he ends up in the Krakow ghetto and he married my grandmother.
1: So this is 1939.
0: 1939, they have to enter the ghetto. And, you know, the salon happened to have been partitioned within the ghetto walls and he was told he had to continue operating because a lot of officers, Nazi officers and their wives, you know, they wanted to get a nice shave and their wives wanted to get their hair styled and he had to oblige. But you know, you can imagine he's giving a straight razor shave to a Nazi officer and it's like, if you nick him, if you make him bleed, your life's over. So no pressure there. So during the ghetto, he was doing that. He was operating there. He was also, they had set up a hospital for typhus, which was running rampant. And so he was also tasked with shaving people's heads when they were admitted into the hospital because that way it would help prevent the spread of typhus because it spread a lot through lice. But that had a little bit of a benefit because he wouldn't get hassled as much because officers assumed that he was also infested with lice or had typhus. He also had to do hard labor, laying bricks. He had to carry furniture out of the ghetto, which at first he didn't realize why. And then it was really because the idea was to erase the fact that Jews had ever lived there, just erase the whole identity. And he also had to sort clothing, and that's actually how he found out that his brother had been murdered. He was sorting through clothes, and he picked up a familiar leather jacket that had his brother's name on it and saw a bullet hole and blood.
1: Oh, God. Can't imagine.
0: Yeah. A lot of people never got that finality. You just don't know what happened to family members. He doesn't know what happened to his mother after she was taken on a transport out of the ghetto. He doesn't know what happened to his sister, who just never came home one day. But he did find out what happened to his brother like that.
1: I mean, to say they're ghosts means that you at least have an apparition. This is just, there's nothing. There's just an empty hole in your life, in your heart, in your head. Like, they were standing there one minute and then...
0: And then they're gone. So my grandfather, the Hilfstein family, and my grandmother, the Klugers, and the Schornstein families, like, these are hundreds of people. And my grandfather and two first cousins survived from the Hilfstein family. That was it. My grandmother and her mother, which was a bit of an anomaly because she was old for a survivor at the time, that was an anomaly that she survives. I mean, that's one of the things that I say when I go into classrooms is that you didn't survive the Holocaust. You died in the Holocaust, you were murdered. The survivors are the outliers.
1: Right. They're the anomaly. Exactly. All right. So, 1942, what happens?
0: There's the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto, and they are sent to Puashov, which is the concentration camp kind of adjacent to Krakow. And if anybody has ever seen Schindler's List, that is where that takes place. And, you know, it was considered a work camp, not a death camp, not an extermination camp. But that didn't mean that people weren't murdered and dropped daily. One of the things that my grandfather would always mention, and my grandmother too, although she didn't speak as much, was that every morning on the way to work detail, you had to bow to these two dogs. You had to say, Good morning, Herr Ralph, and Good morning, Herr Ralph. And if you didn't, they were trained to maul you, to rip your throat out. Amon Gut, he was called the Butcher of Pasha, and he had these dogs, and that's what they were trained to just rip your throat out. It was particularly traumatic for my grandmother, and I know she had nightmares from it.
1: Well, and it's also the further dehumanizing, objectifying of individuals to put them, at least in this German's mind, below that of their dogs.
0: 100%. I mean, they were untermensch. They were subhuman. That's the one thing that makes anti-Semitism slightly different than other hatreds than, let's say, like anti-Black racism is because there is a religious component, but it's an ethnicity. So that's how it's viewed. It's a racialized form of hate it doesn't fit into a neat little box as just like anti-religious prejudice or just ethnic identity. It's kind of a crossover.
1: So your grandfather and your grandmother go into Plaschow 1942. Are they there for the next three years?
0: They were there until nearly the end of the war. Once the Russian army started advancing, they were sent on a death march to Auschwitz.
1: So the idea being, You'll die on the way. And if you don't, you'll die when you get there.
0: Exactly. So, and we're talking about January in Poland. It's cold. It's, it's you know, below freezing. And you're wearing what amounts to cotton-striped pajamas with slippers. Maybe you have a coat. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have a hat. and Maybe you don't. And you have to walk through the countryside over 50 miles. And if you drop, you're shot. And my grandmother fell at one point, and. My grandfather carried her on his back for as far as he could until he couldn't anymore. And then one of his cousins carried her until she regained enough strength.
1: So then they're liberated by the Red Army.
0: Well, no, they make it to Auschwitz. And my grandmother was there for only a couple of days before she was sent on to Bergen Belsen. And then my grandfather, to at this point stay ahead of the advancing army and also the French at this point, he basically was sent from one camp to another. And they were sent in. Cattle cars, which are obviously not meant for people. And he said that you were crammed in there so tight that you didn't know who had died until you got to the next location and you got out, and the dead bodies would just drop to the floor.
1: Just fall. Right. And so the war ends.
0: So he actually would say that he liberated himself because the train tracks had been bombed ahead of the train near Bodensee, which was a lake. And he overheard, he could speak German, and he overheard some of the SS talking about. Bodensee, which was a lake nearby. And he assumed that they meant to drown anybody that was left. So he got together with about a dozen other people. And were like, if we all take off at night, if we try to escape and scatter, we have a better chance of somebody surviving. So he took off with one of his cousins and they found a farmhouse and they broke in and they stole a potato which kept them fed for a couple of days until he heard Liberté being yelled, and it was a French soldier sitting on top of a tank.
1: Wow. So at this point, he'd been moved across Germany to the West. Yeah. Wow, okay. So how did they find each other? How did your grandparents find each other after the war? Because there's millions of refugees migrating back and forth across Central and Eastern Europe.
0: Right. So first, my grandfather tried to go home, where he was not welcome, where there was somebody living in his apartment where his family had lived. And he was directed by the UN to go to a displaced persons camp. So he ended up in a displaced persons camp that was set up in Konstanz, Germany. And at that point, Poland had the largest Jewish population in Europe, about 3 million, and there was only 10% left. So to find anybody alive was a miracle, but somehow he found out that my grandmother was alive and she was in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp. Now, for anybody who thinks that after liberation, the suffering was over, they don't have citizenship anywhere.
1: Right. They're stateless.
0: Right. They have nothing. And he had to get permission from the French army, which was operating the DP camp that he was at, to go and get my grandmother from the Bergen-Belsen DP camp and bring her back.
1: Right. So you're crossing out of the French-slash-allied zone across Germany into the Soviet zone. This is not exactly an easy trip by itself, right? No,
0: and I don't really have the details on that trip so much. I have a letter, you know, and it's written in English and French that gives him permission to go and get her. So he's just like, I go and I got her and I brought her back.
1: My dad's side of the family is Jewish, but they left Russia and Poland, you know, like 1900. But my grandmother, until she died, was a contributor, volunteer to many Holocaust-related efforts. But when you sat there with your grandparents, I mean, the strength that they displayed is one that goes far beyond physical. Like at any moment, you could just say, I've had it. I got nothing left here.
0: Oh, 100%. And my grandparents, you know, especially my grandfather had, I don't want to say he left the war with a positive outlook, but he took things in stride and he saw the good in people. And that was not the case with all survivors.
1: Well, could you blame them? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I
0: mean, obviously there's PTSD, there's mental illness. I've heard the story of a 3G whose survivor grandparent committed suicide. But the stories that you hear tend to come from the survivors who, that's how they dealt with their trauma.
1: They had to sort of pass it
0: on. 100%. My grandmother, I mean, she spoke, but not until later. And sometimes they were fabrications. And the question is, Is she remembering things like that because that's how her brain has decided that really happened? Or was it a fabrication she made intentionally to protect other people, to protect herself? Even how she would tell this beautiful story about how my grandfather, how they found each other after the war. Like she told this at his funeral, you know, she heard singing and she came to this room and there he exclaimed, oh, my wife, like that's not what happened. Like when my grandfather found her, she was hospitalized. But that's not what she wanted to project.
1: Could it be that in that moment when she first saw him, that's what happened in her mind?
0: 100%. In her
1: her soul was like this sort of singing, right? Like, oh my God, we've come all this way and here he is.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's entirely possible. I mean, she also, like we have the wrong date on her gravestone because she made herself younger because her mother had made herself younger to increase her. Chances of survival. Interesting. But she never changed that on any document. So it wasn't until my mother was digging through documents in Poland that she realized we don't even have the right year.
1: Because it became her reality. Exactly. So how did they make it to the US?
0: So they were in the DP camp. My uncle was actually born in a hospital just outside the DP camp in Konstanz, Germany, about a year later. And they were there until 1951.
1: Jesus, six years, six yeah. years after the war. So they suffer of the war for six years. So this is a 12-year ordeal. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't think about the fact that this journey ended May 7th, 1945. No. Right.
0: So, yeah, so they were, um, they had initially wanted to go to Israel, um, but the uh, my grandfather was voted the head of the, The Jewish community in the DP camp. So he was kind of the go-between between between the Jewish community and the French forces which were in charge there. And they told him that he couldn't go, that he had to stay there and remain in his role for them. And so that opportunity fell away and he was sponsored by a distant cousin later on. They came to New York by way of Boston and they settled in the Bronx in an area that he would call not the ghetto. And what he meant by this was he didn't move into a community of Jews. And when they bought the house, you know, they lived in an apartment for a while and he ended up opening a salon and they bought this house in the Pelham Bay neighborhood in the Bronx, which is mostly Italian. My mom was four years old and he took her door to door, said, I am Max Hilfstein, I am a Jew, I live over there. For two reasons, one, he wanted to know if anybody was gonna have any issues upfront. But the second, because he thought it was really important that he live among people that weren't exactly like him, that he showed the world that, you know, I just want to live and work and raise my family in peace, just like you, that we have more in common than we have different.
1: So you've heard these stories. So at what point in your life did you hear your grandmother and grandfather talking about these stories, trying to explain that? to a young person is pretty difficult because there's just no way to conceptualize it when you're seven.
0: Absolutely. I don't remember not knowing to some extent because some of these stories, my grandfather would, you know, I'd be over at his house and he would tell me like bedtime stories like of not necessarily the most brutal parts of the war, but parts of it. And I realized that that's Not entirely normal, but that's how a part of my childhood it was. I was always surrounded by survivors and their children. And so it wasn't until I was 10, and I remember I mentioned something to somebody about my grandparents being Holocaust survivors, and they didn't know what I was talking about. And I was completely floored that they had no idea about this at all. And fast forward a couple months later, and I ended up doing a school project, and I interviewed my grandfather in front of the entire fifth grade. And of course, you know, he would take out some of the really graphic details, but kids can understand. And his attitude was children died. So children now can learn that this happened because if it's ingrained to you that if you're different or if this can happen to somebody that's different than you, then you're always kind of aware of that, you know, that you can become an upstander and you could point it out when something doesn't sit right with you.
1: You said something earlier, which is you're the last. Living link to your grandparents. It seems to me that we're losing a lot of that history. And one of the things about the Holocaust is never forget or never again. Both. (laughs) But it seems like, never forget. Well, it seems like our memory is getting a little slippery. And never again looks like that slope's getting a little slippery too.
0: Oh, yeah. The Claims Conference, they did a survey a couple years back of just general Holocaust knowledge and I think only about 30% of millennials, which are, you know, late 20s to late 30s, couldn't tell you what Auschwitz was. They can't tell you how many Jews died. There's just a massive lack of knowledge because people don't talk about it. I remember in my high school textbook, you know, I'm in a Jewish area, you know, there's one paragraph on the Holocaust and I raised my hand and I was like, this isn't good enough. And you know, a week later, my grandmother was speaking in front of the class.
1: <laughs> Sounds like my grandmother. Five feet of pure fury is what I call
0: her. Oh, it. God. A whole five feet? <laughs> Mom was like 4'10". And fearless. Oh I my mean, God, for sure. Education ended up being her coping mechanism because she said anything could be taken away from you except for your knowledge. That is the only thing you ever really truly own. She spoke seven languages fluently and ended up with two PhDs and was a historian. I mean, incredibly impressive woman. Her biggest fear throughout the war was that she was afraid she would forget how to read. And she ended up being an educator, a historian of sciences, but she also taught junior high school in the Bronx. And, you know, there was this one day where a kid had a knife on another teacher and she walked in and she just demanded that he hand her the knife. And she was like, I survived Nazis. You think I'm scared of you? <laughs> Right. You know, totally. and she's this four foot ten right. little Polish woman with a heavy accent. You know, fearless.
1: You're gonna come after me? I don't think so, buddy. That is wow. Well, that's incredible. So, tell me a little bit more about the education that you do.
0: So, we have three J Y through the We Do program. We have about 350 trained speakers. Thanks in part to the pandemic, we've gone virtual. So, we've given our training virtually and also can be available in person or virtually to classrooms anywhere. All you have to do is go to our website and click Request a Teacher, which we offer for free to any institution or school. We operate by donation only. And what we do is we provide a human element, you know, in the middle of, let's say, a history's. World War II curriculum, or often actually in the middle of an English class that let's say has just read Knight or Diary of Anne Frank, we provide that empathetic link from history to actual people that are still feeling the impact.
1: You hear the number six million, right? It's impossible to conceptualize or intellectualize. I mean, it's Stalin's murderous thing, right? You know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So you may never remember my name or my grandfather's name, but if I make these students feel something, I give them a connection to history, to me, you know, because I don't just talk about the years in the camps and the ghetto. You know, I talk about his life as he grew up, the kind of person he was, and the kind of person he was after. And a lot of who I am is a direct result from that. And like I said before, a lot of my fears are a direct result of that.
1: So if you're teaching a class, either in person or virtually, is there a disbelief in the students? Is there a revulsion in the students? Is there a generalized response or does everybody sort of deal with it in their own way?
0: I mean, there's definitely a varied response, but the vast majority, and this is anywhere from fifth grade and up, you'd be surprised how tuned in they are. You see kids with their jaws drop and sometimes you see tears and shock and you get incredibly insightful questions from kids too. And a lot of times, you know, we don't really generally speak to Jewish schools and institutions. When I spoke to four classrooms in the South Bronx, like I'm talking to brown and black kids who most of them have probably not knowingly had a conversation with a Jewish person. So I've gotten comments where it's like, oh, I would have never guessed that your family had ever been through that. And the whole thing is that a lot of different people, a lot of them would have some kind of trauma in their background, some kind of stories of displacement or persecution or something. So they understand prejudice. And so now they're seeing it in maybe through somebody else's eyes and in a different context and understanding that when you're walking down the street, that you don't know everybody's story. You don't know what they've been through, what their family has been through.
1: And do you still teach personally?
0: Yeah. My next classroom going in is in February. So basically what happens is, you know, a school or an institution requests a speaker and an email goes out to the speakers bureau who would like to take this. And, you know, you sign up.
1: Well, and we want to get the information for everybody before we let you go, but I want to turn to where we are today and your fears and concerns, and I think I probably share a lot of them, and I think probably a lot of our listeners do too. I'll use it with a specific example, and we can go out from there. There is a school district in Texas who said that if you're going to teach the Holocaust, you have to teach both sides of the Holocaust. Now, I'm not sure, Anna, how you teach, like, the virtues of the Vance Conference in a class about the Holocaust, I mean, to me, it's fundamentally un-American because you're basically saying everything has a moral equivalency. There are some things that are pure evil, and the Holocaust is one of them. What does that say to you as not only a 3G, but also as an educator of the Holocaust when you see stuff like that?
0: It's terrifying. It really is. And it's one of the reasons why things like Holocaust education should be mandatory that whole idea that there's moral equivalency or that there's two sides to history. No, there's history, period. But we live in a world where the Holocaust is often used as some kind of measuring stick to minor inconveniences.
1: Oh, you mean like wearing a mask or getting an injection?
0: Exactly. And to be clear, there is under no circumstance where you can say this is like the Holocaust except for the actual Holocaust. That's actually a form of historical revisionism, because for people that don't know anything about the Holocaust, they see that and they go, oh, that's what it was like. So when you talk about the Holocaust as this huge, coordinated, organized genocide, they don't see it like that because they relate it to their minor inconveniences.
1: Yes. I hadn't put it quite that fine a point on it, but you're absolutely right. Like, I'm going to wear a yellow star to demonstrate that I had to get vaccinated for my job, and therefore I'm just like a Jew in the Krakow ghetto. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, it leaves me without words, unfortunately. In the time of COVID, there's friction with everything. And Americans, as you know, don't like friction. We like to have our lives the way we like them in the exact way that we've laid them out. And now, to your point, it's like, oh, well, I had to do this and I didn't like it. Therefore, I'm such a giant baby because I'm an American. I'll compare it to this awful historical event. Awful, not even the right word.
0: Well, the fact that there is no sort of standardized education on this is kind of the root of the problem for this particular topic. And it's also that when stuff like that happens, like people donning stars because, you know, they have a minor inconvenience of wearing a mask into a store, they get kind of written off as, oh, those crazies, oh, that's ridiculous. But We don't get into why this is so wrong and how do we fix it? We just say it's inappropriate. It's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Look at those crazy people. I understand like it's impossible sometimes to have the mental and emotional bandwidth to deal with it all the time and confront it every single time you see it. But we have to start. We can't dismiss it because at the end of the day, anti-Semitism is a cornerstone of white nationalism. And you can't dismantle white nationalism without confronting anti-Semitism because white nationalism wants to tear down democracy, as you know, and it does that through these conspiracy theories. And at the end of those conspiracy theories is a cabal of Jews which run the world.
1: Well, and fire the space lasers.
0: Right. And don't forget the space lasers.
1: But I mean, last week at the United States Capitol, no less a person than Lauren Boebert, who is if she's not the worst person elected to Congress in a class of the worst people ever elected to Congress, like, I hate to see what comes next. But she was waiting for an elevator. A group came out. I believe one of the gentlemen was wearing a yarmulke.
0: It was an orthodox man was heading the tour of young men who are wearing yarmulkes.
1: Right. And she said, oh, what is this reconnaissance? And they all just, as I understand it, like they were just like, the hell? Because, like, that's not a normal thing to say to people unless you're her. But, like, that's the kind of stuff where between a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert, they are not the fringe of the Republican Party anymore. They are square down the middle of it. And so, to your point, I had a guest on Ruth Benguiat a couple of weeks ago who said Trump recreated the Republican Party by creating this umbrella of all these people who otherwise didn't have a place to go in American society or American politics, people like Green and Boebert live under that umbrella, like the white nationalists the guys who do the Der Sturmer, or the congresswoman from Illinois who said, oh, you know, Hitler was a family man too. Like, it becomes normalized. Rick likes to call it the Overton window, where it's like, none of this is normal. So like, in your mind, what do we have to do to start telling people, you know, raising the flag? blow on the horn that this isn't normal.
0: Well, besides understanding what anti-Semitism is and how it operates, is making sure that people have access and are encouraged to Holocaust education as well. I mean, it's such a massive problem. And I don't know if I am equipped to be the one to say, this is how we fix it. But all I know is that I am scared and I am scared for the safety of my kids. You know, temples shouldn't have to have security, but they've have for years.
1: Well, I told somebody that the other day with the temple in Texas. I said, you don't go to an Episcopal church or a Lutheran church, you know, and see security guards standing out front. Right. It's not a thing. You know, at the the Jewish Community Center in downtown San Francisco, you know, if you go into the garage, like they run a mirror under your car. Right. Like that doesn't happen at the Presbyterian church.
0: And that's something that I did not realize when I was a kid. And, you know, there's private security hired at the door when you're going into, you know, holiday services, that that's not a thing that exists in other religious (laughs) settings. I just thought this is just the way that it is. And it wasn't until I was older. I'm like, no, this is how it is for our tribe.
1: Why do you think anti-Semitism is so persistent? Look, there will always be folks who are racist against African Americans or any other. Why is anti-Semitism in particular so persistent?
0: Well, anti-Semitism predates modern racism. And, you know, we've always kind of been a minority. And the way that anti-Semitism operates is that it can morph and turn into whatever ails your society, we can blame on this small group right there. Anytime you see Trump or on the right, you know, would tweet something about Soros. You're invoking that Jews control monetary institutions. And if you look back to where that comes from, that's because the church in Europe deemed that handling money was dirty. So they wouldn't let their people do it, let the Jews do it.
1: And interest was usury, and only the Jews would do it. You can charge interest, right? But we're going to make the Jews do it.
0: Exactly. And it's your money, but they have to handle it.
1: And then ultimately, we want all our money back. So we'll beat up the Jews, scare them out of town and then start doing it ourselves.
0: Exactly. So the ADL actually on their website has this breakdown of anti-Semitic tropes and where they originate from and how they have morphed in society today. You know, there's the controlling the media and controlling money and blood libel. And the whole thing is that one of the reasons why it's so persistent and it's not always called out is because people view prejudice as punching down and anti-Semitism they see as punching up because they see it as, well, I'm not being discriminatory if I'm telling the truth.
1: So, you know, there's the Martin Niemöller poem. First, they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I mean, to Neymar's point, this is where I see it now. This thing goes the wrong way. It'll be the Jews. It'll be the blacks. It'll be the Latinos. Everybody will have their turn. White nationalism is ugly across the board. It doesn't have redeeming values. And soon it will only be the people who were in charge that will decide, You get to go here and you get to go there and you can do this and you can't do that. But people can't possibly imagine it. So therefore, it's like, well, that could never happen here. And we know what happens when people say that.
0: Well, my grandfather said his whole life, it happened before and it can happen again. So it's people not being complacent. And when they see something, even if it's not directed towards their community or them personally to say something. To call it out. People need to be upstanders. You know, you can't just bury your head in the sand because it doesn't affect you.
1: Or it makes you uncomfortable.
0: Or it makes you uncomfortable. Good. Be uncomfortable.
1: You've mentioned upstanders twice. What's an upstander?
0: The opposite of a bystander. Somebody who when they see something, whether it's overt hatred or prejudice or something a little bit more subtle, that they just say, that's not okay. That's not right. That's not funny. I mean, studies have shown, going back to people hearing survivors' stories, whether it's from a survivor directly or a 2G or a 3G, studies have shown that having that kind of education and hearing about a person and what they went through has shown that those people when they grow up are more likely to stand up for others that are not like them. And that doesn't just apply to Jewish people that applies to everybody, just like the poem. It's just being loud and making yourself uncomfortable.
1: Well, amen to that. Well, let me just tell you, Anna, if there's one thing we're happy to do, it's make ourselves uncomfortable. But listen, out there for folks, you know, we're counting on you to be the upstanders too. It doesn't take that many to start this good work. And the more of us that do it, the more people will see that this is how we should do it. Anna, before we let you go, where can we find more about you online, social media, and where can we find more about your work?
0: My organization is 3GNY.org and NewKrakow.org, especially the 3GNY We Do, We Educate program. The information is on the website. Support us. Request educators into classrooms. People with kids, talk to your kids' teachers. Suggest they contact us. As far as me personally, I am not on social media that actively.
1: You are very smart then. It probably must be very happy.
0: I'm on there a little bit for professional reasons and stuff. And occasionally I go on there and I engage in some arguments because I have to take my own advice to be uncomfortable, but wasn't able to withstand being on Twitter all that much.
1: Oh, yeah. No, they're terrific, aren't they? It's a really, it's a lovely place. Well, and I'll just say this, ironically enough, everyone, if you're looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Anna, I want to thank you for joining me today. This was an incredible conversation. I hope everybody checks out Anna's work, 3GNY and New Krakow Friendship Society. Anna, thanks for joining me. To everyone out there, I hope this has given you a lot to think about, but also a lot to aspire to. And we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.